Welcome to another edition of Bite Marsh Cafe, where we serve you the first bite of today's science, technology, and innovation. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa. First up, we're going to get an update from Dean Levitt on his latest startup, Teacup Analytics. And this, uh, then we'll learn a little bit about how technology like drones can aid in the discovery of remote, rare native plant species from Kavika Winter and Merlin Edmonds. So first off, let's welcome Dean Levitt all the way from Israel to give us an update on his latest projects. Welcome back to the show. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Now, you know, the last time we had you on, uh, we were talking about Mad Mimi. And of course, Mad Mimi, I think a lot of people in Hawaii use it uh, as a uh, sort of email contact uh, list, and it's been very useful in my efforts to get the word out on legislation and things that I want to p- keep people posted about. But you actually sold that several years ago, right? Yes. Uh, in 2014, GoDaddy acquired Mad Mimi, and uh, it was around that time also that I actually left Hawaii. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you got a big like payout and you <laughs> said, I'm going to... I'm going to live the high life. <laughs> Not quite. Well, uh, the the first thing I did, well, I went to, to Tel Aviv initially for family reasons. Mm-hmm. And it was shortly after that that we got the really good news about about Mad Mimi being acquired by GoDaddy. And it, it was an auspicious time, I think. Oh, yeah. Is no, Mad no. Mimi still around? I think I still get Mad Mimi emails from Bert. Yeah. Well, uh, HTDC still uses it, I know. Right, absolutely. And and my old trail running group here also still uses it. So it's still around, it's still growing, it's still active. Fantastic. Uh, and and there hasn't been that much marketing to Mad Mimi. I mean, it's kind of more just word of mouth, right? I mean, I always found it very easy to use. Right. Actually, from day one, we never invested in, in any marketing for it. It just seems to have been grown from word of mouth. And then GoDaddy initially was thinking about rolling it uh, – together with GoDaddy email marketing, but it seems to be still growing, still standing on its own, and uh, they've kept it as is. Mm-hmm. A strong and fun brand. So, mm-hmm. of course, this sale gave you an opportunity to pursue other things, explore other things, and I think that is one of the things that brought you to Teacup Analytics. What is Teacup Analytics? Sure, absolutely. Well, having worked with small businesses for about eight or nine years with Mad Mimi, I heard so much from them about them wanting to understand their audience on their website, how many people are coming. And I thought, well, I can really simplify Google Analytics. I I felt that I had a knack for simplifying data. And I built Teacup Analytics to to simplify the website data for a small business. Mm -hmm. Now, when I first, I think you mentioned to me Teacup Analytics, but then I also heard about Teacup from the folks over at Ikezo. And I think uh, Dan might have been telling me about it. And I thought, wow, okay, so Dean's working on it. Dan's working on it. What's the relationship going on between Dean Levitt and Dan Nikes? I mean, you know, Dan. Yeah, Dan. Um, sure. Luke. Uh, Dan Luke. Dan Teacup was built in Hawaii by the team at Ikezo. And uh, initially, well, we've made some changes since then. But the, the brain of all our, our data processing, one thing we do that's really special is qualitative uh, analysis of quantitative data. Mm. So all of that brain was built here in Hawaii with uh, the team at Ikezo. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, um, I run many websites, so Google Analytics is very familiar to me. You put it on a website, it can tell you all kinds of things, session length, how many people are there, are they bouncing off, what pages are going, all sorts of things. But it's also pretty complex. And uh, I would imagine when you created uh, Mad Mimi, it was kind of a simpler email newsletter system. So is that kind of the vision for Teacup Analytics? Exactly. That that was definitely the inspiration. The thing is that Google Analytics provides so much data, it actually hides the reality. So what we wanted to do is say, okay, well, 
here's how many people bounce. Here's how long people are standing on your site. But then my mother asked me, well, here's my bounce rate for my website. Is it a good bounce rate? And so mm-hmm. that's what we try to answer. Is the data you're seeing actually good or bad or mediocre, et cetera? Mm-hmm. And in terms of uh, the development of Teacup Analytics, I mean, what have you gone through over the past couple of years? Because you're actually kind of rolling out a new version of it. Right. So today, actually, we've released an updated version of all our reports. Oh, congratulations. And we're also releasing Teacup AdWords tool because one thing that, that – analytics can't do is it can't get you new customers. And and all small businesses have a universal problem of, I need new customers. Mm -hmm. So I thought, well, how can I be more useful and more helpful? And we can use the data we're getting with Teacup and help make better decisions when it comes to Google AdWords. So we've rolled out a new platform to manage pretty much every aspect of Google AdWords. So that makes good sense. I mean, on one on the one hand, you can tell them basically how their website is doing, but you want more traffic to your website. How do you do that AdWords? When you say that it says that, you know, this is a good or uh, not so good metric, are you comparing it against that site's past history, for example? Or are you saying in your industry of uh, fabrics, other people see this bounce rate, so in your industry, you're doing very well. How do you say that they're doing well or not doing well? Sure. You, you hit the nail on the head right away. It's a uh, it's based on past history and current performance. So if we're going to look at a page, let's say you write two blog posts, which one's really interesting to your, your audience? It's the one that's getting the most engagement, the one that becomes a starting point that drives more traffic, that drives more engaged, interested traffic, et cetera. So we're, we're looking back about three months and then comparing it uh, at a very granular level to, to your current and past history. Mm-hmm. Are you in competition with other folks that provide analytics for things like AdWords? When it comes to analytics and Google AdWords, it's a, it's a fairly competitive space. Mm-hmm. When it comes to AdWords, no one that I've seen is serving small businesses apart from actual independent agencies. So you, you might hire an AdWords guru or an AdWords expert to actually run your AdWords campaign for you, but that's fairly costly. Right. So mm-hmm. you, right now, um, there are Google certifications to be someone who can help a small business with that. And I would imagine that if your business is doing really well, you would move to that point. But what you're saying, I guess, is that this AdWords addition is kind of a first step and it's self-service in the sense that if I used it, it would give me some pretty basic uh, ideas on how to improve my customer flow, my leads. Exactly. Well, if you hire an agency, you're buying a lot of time with them. And that, that time is going to cost you as a small business because mm-hmm. You're getting expert advice, commitment, research, etc. Then someone's got to craft your landing pages, got to optimize month over month. So they often have fairly uh, high minimums for your ad budget, minimum fees each month. And that's often unaffordable for a micro business or a small business with, say, less than 20 people on the team. What is your typical entry level price point for a small business getting involved with, uh, with Teacup Analytics? Uh, we have a flat rate no matter what size it is, and, and our fees are $59 a month. But the minimums is really what I think makes it far more affordable because an agency would require a $3,000 minimum in most cases. We require a $300 minimum. That's actually a Google requirement, not our, our mm-hmm. own. Mm-hmm. So obviously, I should ask this question. You did very well creating a simplified newsletter system that was then acquired, and it allowed you an opportunity to do and explore other things. Now you're building another great product that simplifies things and helps small businesses. Is your vision that uh, this business grows and expands organically? Or is there another opportunity to transform your life and maybe bring you back to Hawaii to do something <laughs> yet again new? 
uh, I think the the latter option there. So I would love to see Teacup grow, and I would love to be back in Hawaii next year. Mm-hmm. The the idea here is that by democratizing tools that help small businesses grow, it's it makes business sense for customers and for the provider. Mm-hmm. Are you do you consider yourself a serial entrepreneur? I mean. I'd have to, although before Mad Mimi, I have about two failed businesses before. So that's, so a, better, that's, <laughs> better, than, that's a better than average success rate, actually. right? <laughs> so I, I think I think I'd have to say I'm a serial entrepreneur at this point. Fantastic. Oh, well, good. if we could get you back in Hawaii, that would be great as well. So if somebody wanted, if somebody has a website and they're they're meddling around in Google Analytics and Google AdWords, and they want a simpler way to do that. Where can they go for more information? The best place is to go to teacupanalytics.com forward slash AdWords for the AdWords tool. Fantastic. Sounds good. Well, thanks, Dean, for joining us. Thank you for having me. And, of course, we'll take a short break. And when we return, we'll be joined by Kavika Winter and Merlin Edmonds to talk about searching for native plants from above. This is Bite Marks Cafe. Support for Bite Marks Cafe comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributors Locations, Nohea Gallery, and Straub Medical Center. I would say that there's something here for everyone. I mean, I really do think so. Um, Even for people who are sports or athletic, I mean, there's news here, there's information here. So I think a lot of people are like, what is that? And it's only for people that that like classical music. Um, That's just not been my experience. While I do enjoy classical music, there's so much more here. Member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Radio with vision. Listen and see. Welcome back to Bite Marsh Cafe. Joining us now is Dr. Kavika Winter and Merlin Edmonds. Kavika is the director of the National Tropical Botanical Gardens Luma uh, Luma Huli. <laughs> oh my! I know you were t- you were jinxing me. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yeah, uh, Luma Luma Huli Garden over uh, over on the island of Kauai. Merlin, meanwhile, is a conservationist at the National Tropical Botanical Gardens and also the primary drone pilot, which we'll hear about in just a bit. And of course, how do drones help in the conservation and preservation of native plants? I want to welcome you both to Bite Marks Cafe. Aloha. All right, aloha. Now. I know you guys were like uh, rushing over here because there was a big conference going on. And uh, the conference takes place, what, uh, yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Maybe you can give us an update on what's happening uh, over at the convention center. Sure. Um, This is our annual conference. It's put on by the Hawaii Conservation Alliance. Um, This year's theme is Hiwa'ahimoku Malamahunua, which is timed in conjunction with the return of Hokulea from Mm. her worldwide voyage and and the message that Hokulea brought around the world about sustainability and managing resources, linking ancestral knowledge with modern science and technology. And so that journey has come home, as as we all know. Mm -hmm. And so the theme of the conference honors that, um, that voyage, honors the mission of the voyage and things like that. So it's the largest gathering of conservation practitioners and conservation researchers around the state. We have uh, probably around 1,000 people attending this week at the convention center. That is not a small conference, and it definitely seems like it's a landmark year for uh, indigenous knowledge and sustainability and and topics of that nature. What um, sessions are you um, overseeing or participating in? Um, Yeah, my my primary interest is connections, uh, building bridges between conservationist researchers and communities and cultural practitioners. That's it's kind of the role that I, I fill in the alliance um, or what I, what I aspire to fill. 
conservationists can tend to be ivory tower researchers, PhDs, kind of kind of people that that have a tendency to perhaps be disconnected from communities and places and practitioners. So building the bridge is a really great opportunity for that, the synergy to happen that we all need to happen for the, the work that we all endeavor to do to be successful. Now, the uh, conference is something that ha- happens what, annually, or is this... Uh, it uh, is every year. We took a hiatus last year mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. Hawaii hosted the World uh, Conservation, Conservation right. con- yeah. uh, Congress, and so that was a huge event, You know, ten, about 10,000 people. Mm-hmm. And so we said, okay, we're going to skip the Hawaii Conservation Conference, and we will all uh, lend our support to that uh, WCC last year. And Merlin, what are you doing uh, at the conference? Are you at the conference? Yeah, I'm at the conference. I'm actually, I did the artwork for the conference this year. Um, so it's on the cover of the program. It's on everyone's badges. And Nice. Yeah, yeah, it was awesome. Really good opportunity. Are there, uh, have you noticed any kind of evolution or difference between past years and this year in terms of the content that's being discussed at the conference? Uh, yeah, uh, as I was saying, there's a there's a growing synergy that's taking place. Um, bridges are being built, uh, and quite successfully, uh, I might add. And and today we had our uh, every every morning we start with awards. So today's award was a conservation innovation award, and it was actually uh, given to two different uh, uh, one person, one organization, both on different ends of the spectrum of our archipelago. One was given to Kikuhi Kanahele um out of Puna and the other award was given to the Hui Makainana Omakana in our area of Haena Kauai. Mm. And they're both innovators in their own ways, navigating ways in the twenty first century to bridge culture and navigate bureaucracy and government and connecting research and so the ways that they both have been doing that is is one of the things that's um, been honored. Innovation and conservation is something that I think this show would certainly want to continue to highlight. So uh, you're the director of the National Tropical Botanical Gardens, Limahuli Garden and Preserve on the island of Kauai, and I have to admit, I don't actually know about this uh, preserve or that it was a national botanical garden. So help me place it on the island in terms of what this preserve is and how big is it? Yeah, that's that's a really good question. I often feel like we toil in obscurity because we're so remote. We're at the end of the road. We're in an, an area called Haena. So many people have hiked the Nepali coast, and so the Nepali coast trail starts in Haena. Uh, Limahuli Valley is a 1,000-acre valley. We have uh, It's owned by the National Tropical Botanical Garden, which is a nonprofit institution that was um, chartered by the U.S. Congress to focus basically on plant conservation. We've existed as an organization for a little bit more than 50 years. Uh, We have five gardens and five uh, nature preserves between Hawaii and Florida. So our location, Limahuli Garden and Preserve, is one place that actually has both, has a botanical garden front, and that is the economic engine that funds the conservation work that we do. So we are actually located in the most biodiverse ecoregion of the whole archipelago, so our valley is home to dozens of critically endangered plants and birds, and they all need to be protected, and that's a lot of the work that we focus on. Another, um, I think, uh, important facet is the is uh, the the breadfruit collection that you have over there. I mean, I know Diane Ragoni that yeah, yeah. kind of manages that. I mean, and that's something, that's a resource that I think is, is uh, probably nowhere else in the world that many varieties of breadfruit. Right. So the Breadfruit Institute is also under, is a part of the National Tropical Botanical Garden. And basically the goal of the Breadfruit Institute is to alleviate world hunger with this amazing tree that we have. Um, uh, We have the the Breadfruit Institute uh, got a grant from Patagonia and is collaborating with the Department of Ag. And they're doing this whole new initiative that's trying to demonstrate how agroforestry, growing food in forests, 
is a viable solution to a lot of the planet's problems. Mm. Now, we were talking about innovation in conservation, and you mentioned it being at the end of the road and fairly remote, Kavika. So, uh, uh, Merlin, um, can you tell us a little bit about the challenges posed by this geography that you're covering with this, um, with this preserve and where you come in in helping access those remote areas? Yeah, so, I mean, it's incredibly steep. There's 3,000-foot cliffs on all sides. Um, I've been doing field botany there for about, like, eight years now. And it's, I mean, most of the plants are kind of in the most remote places on the side of the cliffs, north-facing, really steep, and just extremely difficult to get to, actually. Yeah, so um, we're bringing in some new technology to kind of help that out. And, uh, yeah, it's really it's really awesome. So with your eight-year history, I mean, um you are now using unmanned aerial, or not, I guess, it's piloted aerial vehicles, but um, how did you do it before? Um, before, I mean, it's basically hiking all day long, trying to find plants, and there's, I mean, you kind of, we have some GIS mapping techniques, actually, that we use to kind of help guide us to the right places. Um, it's based on data that's been gathered over the last 30 years by our botanists, and um, we kind of compile all of that and basically use it to figure out just, you know, how to steer the course and where to find the rare plants. So tell us about the now this drone program used to do these kind of surveys. Yeah, so we got a drone, I guess, um, about a year ago. And um, our GIS technician, he's kind of been spearheading um, the work that we're doing with the drone. And uh, I was a little bit of a skeptic, actually, for a while. And most recently, we've been flying it around Limahuli and checking out some of the cliffs and finding some really, really cool plants. And then we had a big discovery um, about a month ago and found some extremely rare species on one of the cliffs. It was awesome. Yeah, because previously, weren't most of the folks that do field work at NTBG actually going out there and hiking down the cliffs? Yeah, and, repelling I mean, I, all kinds I, I of... Think, I think uh, um, there were some people that were famous for doing that, right? I mean, like uh, finding brigamia and you know those kinds of... Uh, Yep. Rare plants. Yeah, so some of our most famous botanists, they were do, they've been doing it since like the seventies. Mm. So then now, so that's you know like physically, personally, you know, rappelling down and finding these things. Now, when you now incorporate some of this new technology, was there? Yeah, like you said, there was like a a little skepticism. Um, skepticism. Yeah, I was I was just kind of wondering if it was actually if we were actually going to find rare stuff. Mm. Oh, um, I, see, I see. Pretty much right away, we started finding some really really cool plants. Um, Stuff that I was actually kind of expecting to see. Um, but it, it really does change the game because we can just, you know, basically leave the office, walk outside, fly about a half mile in, you know, three minutes and start looking around in these places that we've never been able to access before. So it's like really a game changer in that way. Well, I definitely want to talk more about uh, this new discovery of uh, that this new technology allowed you to uncover. But um, we're going to take a very quick break. We will be right back. You are listening to Bite Marks Cafe. Support for Bite Marks Cafe comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributors Inter-Island Solar Supply, Kaiser Permanente, and Hastings and Pleadwell, a communication company. Welcome back. This is Bite Marks Cafe. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa, and we're talking to Dr. Kaviko Winter and Merlin Edmonds about using drones in remote areas to locate rare native plants. And, of course, right before the break, you know, we were talking about leveraging some of this new technology. But, you know, the idea of flying a drone and trying to look at all the potential areas that might be, you know, let's say, uh, habitat for native plants. Kavika, I mean, 
how do you narrow that down? I mean, there's a lot of places to look. How do you sort of focus your attention mm-hmm. on potential areas of, of uh, discovery? Yeah, that's a really great question. And, and this is where data comes in, mm-hmm. into it in a lar- in large way. So we, as an institution, have been doing field botany, remote field botany, extreme field botany for, since the late 70s. So actually 40 years now. And, um, you know, we have... we that we would often joke that the only thing stopping us is the end of our ropes. And you know, that's what the field botanists would say. Um, but, you know, we had two hurricanes, 82, 92. It blew down a lot of areas of forest. And so in the collection that's happened since 90, 1992, there are areas that seem to be more robust, more, more that still have native plant populations. And so what we started to do was look at that data. And then we, using GIS technology, we made predictive models about, okay, where haven't we gone yet? Because, we, we can get permits to access state land. We can access the land we own. Um, but mm. a lot of it's really remote. There's no way to any, you know, it's not humanly possible to look at all, repel down every cliff. And mm-hmm. so it, we, we took all this 30, 40 years of data, made predictive models, and then looked at the, the land that we own in Limahuli and said, okay, what does this predictive model say? Where does it match up that we haven't been yet? And these are some of the areas that um, they targeted with the drone. This was Ben Nyberg, the GIS um, person? or um, yeah. yeah, it was a collaboration between the previous uh, guy, Matty Lucas, and then Ben Nyberg and uh, creating those predi- predictive models for our area. So what was the, the your favorite or this landmark discovery that you made just about a month ago? I think I even read about it in The Verge, which is like a, a tech blog. I mean, it was <laughs> mainstream news to me. Yeah, it's uh, is a really exciting discovery. Is uh, Laukahi is the Hawaiian name? It used to be really prominent in um, Laolapao traditional healing practices, but um, it's gotten so rare. Luckily, there's a substitute Laukahi that we still use for medicine. But this is this is the native that the the ancestors use, and it's so rare. It's now in the plant extinction prevention program. Huh. There were thought to only be maybe maybe twenty five left, and mostly growing along the rim of Kalalao. You'd have to rappel down to check them out and collect seeds and. It was we we were you know this is one of the plants that's closer to extinction than almost m- most other plants and so that was a discovery they flew the drone up there and right away saw a handful of them. Mm-hmm. So actually, that's a good question uh, for for uh, Merlin. You're are you watching what the drone is seeing live and you immediately go, "That's what I'm looking for." I, I was wondering if maybe it was just bringing back footage or you were running it through some kind of visual analysis, but no, you're you're you are. The drone is your eyes, and you're following it as it's scanning an area. Yeah, so you can see um, you hook it up to iPhone, iPad, whatever, and you can see on the screen basically where you're flying. So that is your eyes, basically. And um, you can actually the quality is not that good when it's beaming wirelessly back from the drone. So we actually kind of saw some stuff that looked interesting, took it back to our office, and then you take the SD card out of the drone and put it in the computer, and that's when you can really start zooming in on stuff, high resolution, and like really kind of figure out where you want to go back to. So actually this discovery, we did one trip and I kind of got excited. I saw something that looked kind of interesting, looked different. We went, ran back to the office, put the SD card in and zoomed in. And I was like, okay, we got to go right back here. And we flew right back there and found it again. Yeah. So in terms of the, you know, on the field and you're running the drone and you're looking at your, was it an iPhone or iPad? At the time, yeah, it was just a small iPhone, actually. So so kind of a small screen. So, yeah, it's hard to see the screen. Probably the light and the sun might be shining on it. So, But you're able to at least kind of identify something that's interesting. And that's how you kind of maneuver in in that particular vicinity. Yeah, well, I mean, I think as field botanists, we all kind of have an eye for Mm -hmm. just, you know, like, what's usually there and what's not necessarily there all the time. So you're kind of looking for something that's different. 
And um, yeah, even in the gra- on the grainy screen, I could kind of tell like, okay, this plant is not something that I've seen on any of the other cliffs we've been to. So let's oh, take it great. back and check it out. So now in terms of your finding something that's interesting, very rare, I mean, are you in the, the now the position to perhaps come up with some sort of program for either protection or collection or what do you what do you do now that you've located this rare plant? That's a really great question. So as I said earlier, this is uh, any plant, any species that's below 50 in the wild is put into a plant. It's a program called the Plant Extinction Prevention Program. Mm-hmm. And there's a whole bunch of collaborators that work together to make sure that these plants don't go extinct. So we're a collaborator in that. The state is and the other collaborators as well. And so part of it is if we want these plants to survive, we have to have them be genetically diverse. So we can't have 25 plants le- left and only, you only collect from one parent. It's, you're going to narrow the gene pool. So this is really exciting for us because this the plants that, that Merlin and Ben discovered, they exist outside of its known range. So this is really exciting. It's it's in some pretty harsh conditions. It's drier, which is really good because climate change is coming, and we need to have genetics that can, can survive drier, hotter climates. So it's, it's a really good discovery that will help us to infuse the genetic diversity within our own collections if we can ever actually get to it to collect seeds. Mm-hmm. And that's a little bit more challenging, right? Because with a drone, you're pretty limited in what you can actually do to the plant. Yeah, no, I mean, it's it's on a vertical rock face. So it's kind of, I mean, it's it's essentially, it's kind of out of reach almost without the drone. As a, as a field botanist, I mean, do you have a sense as to how resilient this plant is or how well it might do, you know, in a cultivated environment? Um, they've actually, I think it's been propagated quite a bit and there's been outplantings done. So, um, yeah, it is definitely successful mm-hmm. in propagation and the ones that we discovered, they actually have maturing seed pods mm. on them right oh, now. Good. So it's kind of like, you know, trying to figure out how to get up there uh-huh. is a goal of ours. Definitely. So you've increased the known population of this plant already in the natural environment. Um, how is this program progressing? I mean, so there's one discovery one month, uh, are you still flying regularly? I mean, what are, what is your expectations for maybe the next year of this program? Yeah, yeah, so well, right now it's it's seabird season, so we're kind of taking uh, mm, yeah. we're push, pushing back a little bit so that we we're sure that we don't um, in, interfere with any seabirds or um, any breeding activity. Um, they get pretty excited when they see a drone around. They start to either mate with it or, or dive bomb it or something like that. <laughs> I've seen um, that. I've seen yeah. That. So, but what we can do is now that we see where these things are, we can actually make a plan of where we can send, you know, people like Merlin out to go see, okay, well, we can hike to the bottom of that cliff. So if we hike to the bottom of that cliff and look around, we might be able to find some things we can collect. So in terms of a, a program, you found this this one plan. I mean, are there others that you're looking for? I mean, what's the, what's the game plan to leverage this technology in other areas? Yeah, I mean, actually, this plant and then another species that we found in the same photo that we took of this plant were not known at all from Limahuli Valley before. Mm. Um, so they're totally new discoveries. So it kind of, I mean, the sky's the limit almost. Like, it really changes the game. Like, we feel like we could almost see anything when we fly around to these places because it's like kind of like going back in time, like 30 years. Like, mm-hmm. these cliffs are 3,000 feet up. A lot of the invasive plants haven't gotten there yet. So it's it's like really like a time capsule almost. Yeah, one of our iconic plants that has been a part of our conservation program is Hibiscadelphus woodii. It's mm-hmm. a crazy Latin name, but there's this endemic hibiscus that is co-evolved with our birds and twisted up and become diminutive. And huh. that was last known to be along along the Kalal Rim and thought to be extinct. So our 
our holy grail is to rediscover <laughs> uh, the population Among of others, Hibiscus yeah. Delphis. Among mm-hmm. others. Are you, are you uh, finding any interest on the other islands to perhaps leverage some of this technology? Yeah, as, as far as we can tell, we're the first people definitely in the Pacific, um, maybe the world, who are, are using drone technology to find rare plants. And so, um, yeah. Excellent. Where can we find yeah. more information about the, the work you guys doing. are doing? Yeah. Uh, well, you can check out uh, our website, um, ntbg.org. Very good. Well, Kavika Winter and Merlin Edmonds are both over at the National Tropical Botanical Garden. We want to thank you both for joining us today. Yeah, mahalo. All right. Thanks a lot. And thank you for listening to Bite Marks Cafe. Join us next week when we'll talk more about drones, this time for schools. And, of course, if you missed any part of this edition, you can find the podcast of tonight's show on bitemarkscafe.org. And if you have any, uh, also on the HPR mobile app. Of course, if you have any comments or suggestions, feel free to email us at feedback at bitemarks.org. You can also find us on Twitter. I'm at bitemarks. And you can follow me at Hawaii. Our engineer is David Chong, and our executive producer is Beth Ann Kozlovich. And of course, stay safe, and we will see you next week on another edition of Bite Marks Cafe. Go!